The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Carl Cornell, Assistant Director of Undergraduate Advising in the Ann S. Bowers College of Computing and Information Science at Cornell University. We talked with Carl about what he has learned from his own journey of being a non-traditional employee. He will share his thoughts on how we can value both education and work experience, as well as how inclusion is achieved when we increase the engagement of all employees. My name is Erin Sumber-Shace. My name is Toral Patel. And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Well, welcome, Carl. So happy to have you here today. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, I get you all to myself today. Our wonderful co-host, Toril, is stuck in horrible travel delays, which I think we can all sympathize with nowadays. Doesn't seem to matter what time of year you travel, if you go by plane, you will experience some delays. So sad that she can't join us, but happy to have some one-on-one time with you. So, Carl, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, if you want to say what pronouns you use and what your role here at Cornell is. Thanks, Erin. Thank you so much for having me here today. My name is uh, Carl Cornell. My affirming pronouns are he, him, his, or they, them, theirs. Um, I've worked at Cornell for 12 years, and my current position is Assistant Director of Undergraduate Advising at the Ann S. Bowers College of Computing and Information Science. Specifically, I work with computer science undergraduate students and making sure they get through their degree program. Excellent. That sounds very interesting. We'll get more into that later, but we need to first address up front the elephant in the room, because I know all of our listeners are going to wonder this right away, which is the fact that your last name happens to be Cornell. Carl Cornell. Any relation to the university? (laughs) Absolutely no relation to the university. I feel like I would be on a beach right now enjoying some vacation time (laughs) if there was some. (laughs) Good point. Good point. All right. Well, we got that out of the way, but obviously it must have been your destiny to end up working here in (laughs) some capacity. Um, And you have. You've worked at Cornell for over 10 years now. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I've been here for about 12 years now. 12 years. Wow. Okay. All right. So tell us more. We heard what you're doing now, but what has your overall educational and career path been thus far? I've definitely taken a less traditional route in my educational background. Mm -hmm. I think before I became a member of the Cornell community, I received my associate's degree in liberal studies with honors, focusing on um, psychology from Tompkins Cortland Community College, or TC3. Mm -hmm. Then I applied to Cornell shortly after getting my associates and started in a temporary role within the School of Civil Environmental Engineering. Um, I quickly found that in that position, I really loved working with people and trying to help them find support and success here at Cornell, Mm -hmm. which led to my positions in both the Undergraduate Office of Chemistry and Chemical Biology and the Undergraduate and Graduate Coordinator role in Earth and Atmospheric Science. Both of these roles provided about 20 or 30 percent of direct student support within their responsibilities. But I was really looking for something that was engaging more with students and supporting students more proactively. So I searched for and found my current position, which almost exclusively really focuses on student success. 
So not only making sure students successfully complete their degree program, but also to make sure that they're in the correct degree program mm. and make sure that where they are headed in Cornell is the right place for them. Sometimes that means we discuss like whether the CS program is right for someone or mm -hmm. it's not the right fit. And if it's not the right fit, maybe where they would want to reach out and look for the right fit within Cornell. So we're not only just a resource to be utilized for the CS program, but we really branch out and help students find the resources and support they need across campus to fit in and feel a sense of belonging while they're here. I really like that. I like that you are highlighting something that probably doesn't get highlighted enough, which is sometimes, quote unquote, success is realizing what you should not be doing, <laughs> or what might not be what you thought it was going to be, whether it be an educational or a career path. Um, and I, I like that because we, we could get tripped up in thinking success means I have to be 100% awesome at the thing I set out to do. Uh, but maybe that's not always the case. Yeah, it definitely isn't always the case, and it's always okay to admit that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's hard for us when we're very focused on a goal to realize that maybe that goal is not what we should be focusing on. So, mm -hmm. you know, we work with students um, and try to broaden their idea of what their end point could be here at Cornell. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And it sounds like maybe, Carl, you have, you have that philosophy, maybe because of some of your own <laughs> experiences. Am I right in thinking that? Absolutely. I think, um, so my own college experience, I started at a small SUNY school, SUNY Alfred, and I started in a degree program that was just not right for me. And I fell out of my first semester of college and decided not to go back and take a couple years off. Mm -hmm. I think that was one of the best decisions I made because it really gave me me the experience of not having a college degree and uh -huh. kind of working in service-oriented jobs uh -huh. and realizing that I do want something a little bit more, which is when I decided to go back to TC3 a little later in my career. Um, so I was more of a non-traditional student when I went back. I was uh, around 23 when I went yeah. to went to college. That had to have been interesting. It was very interesting. There definitely is. Once you've hit over 20, there's that little age gap, and that means so mm -hmm. much because you're in college for a very different reason than yeah. students are at that point. <laughs> yep, that's a good point. Yeah, you're sort of in a different place mentally and emotionally uh, than some of your peers. That's a good point. Well, my first semester of college, I started out as a nursing major. And when we went on a field trip to the emergency room and I fainted when some guy came in with a bloody thumb, I thought, well, you know, maybe this isn't for me. So, you know, <laughs> I can empathize. Instead of trying to you know, push myself through the sight of blood, I said, yeah, no, not for me. So <laughs> Totally understandable. <laughs> Well, Carl, you have definitely had a, uh, some different roles, professional roles at Cornell. But beyond your job, you have really been active in many other spaces at Cornell, you know, not necessarily directly related to your job. Can you share more about what are all the various other groups and initiatives that you have been involved with? Of course. Um, so currently I serve on the employee assembly as the LGBTQ representative at large. Um, and as a part of my responsibilities of an EA member, I sit on three internal committees, the EA Election Committee, the EA Welfare Committee, and the EA Communications Committee. I also serve as the EA Liaison 
for the University Assembly's Campus Welfare Committee. Wow. And so the University Assembly is a group of faculty, staff, and students that come together to discuss, and, and specifically for the Welfare Committee, um, kind of campus welfare and mm-hmm. pretty big topics on how to make the campus more inclusive in how we approach policies and procedures. Mm. So... Let's face it, you're very busy. Yeah. <laughs> and you just listed a whole bunch of extra committees <laughs> and work groups and everything that you have chosen to, to try to make time for. It. I know well enough to know you're not getting paid to do that, right? <laughs> Those are all volunteer positions. So, so what made you even interested in wanting to take all that on? Well, even on top of those committees, I also serve as uh, the community kind of in a broader way by being a board member of the LGBTQ CNG and a founding inaugural leader for the uh, College of Engineering and Bauer CIS annual Pride event as well. So um, what inspires me to kind of take on these roles is really the connection with my community. I, I very much value the connections that I do have because this social network is really important to feeling mm-hmm. like you belong and you thrive here at Cornell. That's really nice. That's really nice. However, <laughs> you know, plenty of people's answer to wanting a social network would be to, you know, just make sure they go out for happy hour after work with people or, you know, something like that. But you, you have chosen to go a little bit more beyond that by trying to do work that sounds like it's going to maybe impact the broader community from like a policy standpoint or procedure standpoint, something like that. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely. I think I'm pretty shy about the fact that I really love advocating for other people. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes that doesn't come out as as well as I would like it to. But a lot of my ability or interest in advocating for other people has really come from growing up neurodivergent and with dyslexia. I was raised in a single parent, low income family. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I had the ability to ask for help because I learned at a very young age mm-hmm that that was how I was going to achieve my goals and get what I needed to support myself. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that has reflected and transitioned into when I have moved into adulthood, me looking and seeing others maybe not having developed these skills as much and not being able to advocate for themselves and really feeling like I could be a, a champion of advocation, not only for myself, but also for other people who are mm-hmm. going through similar or challenging experiences here at Cornell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I will hear people who have grown up with some challenging circumstances, like the ones that you described, sort of have this mentality of, well, I did it. You know, I, w- I thought I was able to do it, so other people have to figure it out, which isn't necessarily the most humane, <laughs> you know, philosophy. And so I, I kind of like that you are recognizing that you figured out how to do it, but that you know not everybody has the ability to do that or has the opportunity to do that. And so you want to try to help others. Well, I've been really fortunate to have some wonderfully kind and strong advocates for myself mm-hmm. who really taught me the importance of self-advocation. Um, and it's because of these role models that I found the drive to really support other people. It, it really is important to me to create spaces and places that feel comfortable, that people feel comfortable in. And for my own well-being, it's really great to have coworkers who find a home here at Cornell and feel like we can be uh, part of a team working together. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So so what have you learned? What have you learned or observed? You know, all these various roles that you've been in, 
you know, like you said, trying to create and make space and that sort of thing. What have you been learning or observing where you think Cornell could maybe give more attention and thought to in our efforts to do what you're talking about, which is improve the campus culture, improve the experience for all employees? That's a great question. I think that Cornell has been and is continuing to work hard to continue to identify areas where they can improve the climate and the experiences that we're all having. I first and foremost want to, before I kind of talk about what I've learned, I want to be open about the fact that while I'm a leader in our community, it takes a team of us to really inspire and create change. And we're from all walks of life. We support each other while doing this emotional and demanding work of improving our community. And it's because of this mutual support that we are able to kind of address and assess how we support and continue to improve our combined workspace. So I want to be very cognizant of while I am a single leader here, it's really a team of us that are working together. Within my work, I think we're really exploring some ideas around growth opportunities for Cornell. One example, which is a relatively new event, one that I run, is the College of Engineering Bauer CIS Pride event. We really wanted to create a space that recognized our LGBTQIA community members and really honor who they are and that they provide so much to this organization. We have succeeded in making this event designed to help solidify connections and create new ones within this community. These connections are really critical for us in fostering a greater sense of belonging on campus. And I really look forward to the opportunity of maybe an expansion of this event or other events that create this feeling of connection. Mm -hmm. I've also been part of discussions in the EA on how the university are making sure that we provide equal opportunities to leadership positions across campus. This tends to be harder for, let's say, non-exempt staff or our amazing staff who are in service-facing roles. Mm -hmm. Often these roles are relied on so much that asking for the time away from work from these positions can be really challenging for managers to adjust to. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping to find ways to incentivize leadership while providing managers the opportunity to allow their employees to become part of these leadership opportunities. Yeah, so when you say non-exempt at Cornell, that essentially means hourly staff, right? Hourly staff who have to punch a clock, as they used to say, time in, time out. And I think what you're hitting on is really something that um, I want to talk a little more about, which is we are very fortunate at Cornell to have, as you say, all these different assemblies and you know opportunities to um, work on the broader mission and vision. But if you're hourly, you have some very different parameters within which you can work when it comes to how you spend your time, right? And so say more about that. Say more about, you know, where you're seeing an opportunity for us to try to think about how that population can have more access to the types of things that you and I can have access to. I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things about being an hourly employee is that a lot of time that means that the requirements of your position require you to be in front-facing roles or roles that interact with people. And so when you're missing, it leaves a gap to interact with people. And people sometimes struggle to fill those gaps. Um, I think there's no piecemeal answer that would work for every single place, but really having the directive come from upper level administration that we value volunteer work in Mm -hmm. your job Mm -hmm. and finding a way to incorporate the idea that volunteer work is 
a part of the responsibility of all of us as a community is a really great place to start Mm -hmm. and figuring out how we can encapsulate that within maybe the job responsibilities in the future or finding some way to even impress the importance of representation that expands beyond, you know, salaried people in these organizations that are meant to represent all our community members. Yeah, I think that's an important point, too. You know, the answer shouldn't be, okay, there's no way to let somebody off the shift or, you know, do something else. So therefore, (laughs) you know, we're not going to consider their opinion or, you know, what their experience is. We have to be thinking on the other side. And how do we creatively make sure that we are seeking out those voices and going to them, right? Going to them when they can't come to us, I think is, is a really important point. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I got to say, one thing that I've become more aware of since the pandemic, and I've tried to be better at how I even talk about this, is that, you know, we still often talk about how during the pandemic, when everybody was working at home, no, everybody wasn't. <laughs> Right? No, everybody was not working at home. There were so many people like the folks you're describing that still had to put their health and safety at risk by coming on the campus and performing those essential duties that the campus relied on to keep the buildings running, to keep, you know, the students fed, to keep the students housed, you know, that sort of thing. There were still so many people doing that and their experience was very different. So when we talk about how do we try to ensure going forward that we have a healthy and safe campus, for example, those are the kinds of people we need to be talking to. The ones that had to live during that, right, really had to face that head on. Those are the ones that we need to be looking at to ask, what could we do better in case this ever were to happen again? Absolutely. And I think uh, these are the people that play some of the most critical roles on Mm -hmm. campus. It's really remiss of us to not have them afforded the opportunity to be in leadership roles and provide input when we're thinking about policies and procedures, which is one reason why we're really looking at changing the landscape to making it um, a little easier for them to do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. You know, I think another thing, you know, you talked a little bit, switching gears slightly, but in some ways it's connected, I think. You know, I talked about yourself sort of being a, quote, non-traditional student and non-traditional employee. You've also said that about your employment situation. Before I get on my question, why don't you say a little bit more about, you know, what do you mean when you say I've been a non-traditional employee? Well, I think I resemble a unique intersection of identities. Mm -hmm. I'm an indigenous American who was raised in a single-parent low-income household. I'm neurodivergent. I've been diagnosed with ADHD, dyslexia, and depression. I was a first-gen college student, and I approached college by myself without any parental help. Um, And I pulled myself up and had to pay for college myself. Mm -hmm. So when, when I talk about kind of the traditional sense in education and the traditional sense in growing up, I talk about how all of those identities have created some boundaries and some some ways in which it's really reformed the way I look at life Mm -hmm. and the way I approach challenges. Mm -hmm. So while, yes, they may have been challenges themselves, I kind of find it a superpower having to deal with these intersections of identities Mm -hmm. because it's really reformed the way I approach things and the way I interact with people. 
at Cornell, I think one of the main things that I have encountered, especially in my current position, is that I'm in a position that really requires a bachelor's degree or suggests that a bachelor's degree is really the relevant educational experience. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges I see from people both on campus and off campus is that they really shy away from applying to positions because they're afraid of not having the educational background needed for that position. Mm -hmm. And usually if I can catch them before the posting has been taken down, I suggest, you know, you really need to apply for positions that you feel you would thrive in, Mm -hmm. regardless of the fit of all of the qualifications. There's relevant life experience that also offsets maybe the lack of the stated educational qualifications. And I think Cornell has been working towards really revamping how they advertise those qualifications. And during my time at Cornell, I've sat on several hiring committees, and I've seen an active shift in evaluations Mm -hmm. and how heavily they base the evaluations on education experience. At the beginning of my time at Cornell, there were times where I felt I had to push to have a candidate to be considered when they had great work and leadership Mm -hmm. experience but didn't hit that educational experience. Mm -hmm. However, recently I have sat on a committee that had more a holistic approach to evaluating their candidates. Mm -hmm. And while the education part was still relevant, Mm -hmm. the metric was almost secondary to assessing if the candidates were fit for the social and organizational aspects of the role and whether their previous experiences really made them the best fit, which I find refreshing because it's an impactful action that Cornell is really taking to ensure the practices are more inclusive. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because I think what makes it more challenging is the fact that we are an institution of higher ed, right? So, and because I've heard that argument in the past. Well, yeah, we have to stick to our degree requirements because if we don't practice what we preach, right, we're, we're a higher ed institution. What would it say about us if we're not valuing the fact that, you know, they should have a master's or a PhD or, or whatever, but at the same time, I get that. If you earned your degree, you earned it, and, and we should celebrate that. At the same time, though, what you're saying is so important, which is we're missing the potential for people who, for whatever reason, weren't able to get that degree, but they have such amazing professional work experience, life experience, that sort of thing. And I don't just see it in that way. I also see it, this is sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier, Sometimes who we look to to be the leaders or the experts in different things, it's like, you know, they, they have a degree, right? We, we just sort of assume that because they have a PhD or because they're a VP, right, that they're going to be the leader, that they're going to be the expert and kind of miss those individuals that may have different titles or different degrees. Um, what are your thoughts about how do we balance that? How do we balance respect for education, respect for title, which, again, you've earned it, how do we balance that with respect for experience, lived experience, work experience? How do we balance that? Yeah, again, there's no perfect solution, and I wish we could come up with one. Um, but but it really is, you know, assessing what the roles, each individual role really needs mm-hmm. and quantifying if the education aspect is absolutely necessary to have the skills and qualifications to fulfill those roles and those responsibilities within that role. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, in some of the positions that I've had, the answer is, I need someone who's going to be a interpersonal savvy person. Mm-hmm. And you 
can't assess someone based on their education, on whether they're going to make connections and be good at communicating. Mm -hmm. You have to meet with them in person and you have to understand kind of their other history. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's just taking a measured approach to both, which is just like how much should we value education in this role and how much should these other experiences really play? And it really is a as needed or basis by basis determination. I think you're right. It's balanced and it's measured and it's really thinking about stopping and, and asking yourself, what is it that we really need? You know, um, in one of my prior roles, we were creating a position for somebody to work at our front desk. And when I was working in our student disability services, and so we get a lot of student traffic. And sometimes we get a lot of people who were upset about something, you know, maybe they weren't getting the accommodations that they needed or, you know, professors weren't sure, were feeling a little frantic about how to provide assistance that a student needed. And so when we were getting ready, when we were interviewing for the various front desk people, yeah, we required a certain degree, and it was kind of like a, because that's just what you do, you require a certain degree, right? (laughs) And we had these candidates, and they were all great. One of them did not have that particular degree, right? But because of their life experience, you know, they were um, a mom who had raised four kids, right? They had been in, really active in sports. They were really good at working on a team. You know, I had to stop and say, I need somebody that can help calm people down <laughs> at the front desk. I need somebody that can make people feel heard, but also make them, you know, not feel like everything has to be dealt with right at that second, right? Somebody who has that confidence to pivot from one person to another And I'm like, yeah, I want her. (laughs) I want the mom. I want the former coach. I want, you know, that's who I want. And and you know, the rest of it she can learn. But to your point, it's like you have to think about the type of person you need and all the other skills and experiences that they have that you might not have had written out in your job posting exactly that way. But you realize they they, they can do it because of what they've already done in their life. Absolutely. I have been very fortunate to have managers that have looked beyond my educational experience. And when they met with me, they went, you know, one of the determining factors of us hiring you was the fact that when we talked to you, you communicated so efficiently and you communicated it in an effective manner that would make me feel comfortable if I were in distress. Yeah. So so yeah. I've I've been really fortunate to secure those interviews. And I think those interviews are really important when you get them. So. Yeah. No, that's great. That's exactly a great example. Yeah. Carl, I want to talk a little bit more about your experience because you really are a leader in in terms of trying to advocate and represent the LGBTQIA community as well. And, you know, with everything going on in the country right now, um, in many other states, you know, when it comes to anti-LGBT legislation that's going under, you know, there's a lot to be concerned about today with that. And so I'd love to hear more of you, you know, just from the roles that you've been performing, from being tapped into the community you know, what are some areas that you think that we could be thinking about in terms of, you know, doing better, doing better to be more inclusive, doing better to be more thoughtful about what our, particularly our employee population who has those identities, how could we be truly supportive? I think Cornell has a good reputation overall, right? But again, this is bigger than Cornell, right? This is something that's going on in our society, you know, that affects people 24-7. So what are you hearing or what are you observing that we're we could be more thoughtful. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, you're absolutely right. And I think first when approaching that that question, I would really need to say that, well, I am a leader in the community. I don't speak for the whole community. And I uh-huh. don't I don't ever claim to know the needs of the community as a whole. And I know that there's a lot of things out there that even though I'm immersed in my community, I will never experience myself. So I want to be cognizant of that when yeah. I talk about Oof. kind of ways in which Cornell can interact with this community. Now, one of the things, you're absolutely right. I think we can focus on kind of positive spaces, acknowledgement and honoring people for the identities that they proudly wear. And even sometimes that they silently wear, um, Mm. creating space where we honor those and maybe not always making it a educational opportunity, but rather an opportunity to connect with each other mm. and and find strength in each other. The other thing is, you're right, the world politics right now are tumultuous, especially in the U.S. And creating space for people to vent their frustration or creating space for people to feel vulnerable or feel hurt is really important as well. Mm-hmm. And so as a community, having spaces for both focusing on the positive and spaces where people can really vocalize their frustration is really important. One of the great things is the CNG group for the LGBTQIA population often approaches really hard subjects Mm -hmm. um, and approaches really sensitive topics to our community Mm -hmm. in a way that provides that space. Mm -hmm. This is one really invaluable area in which you can find camaraderie and find brainstorming on how we can approach talking about these ideas. So I found comfort in that. I think another area, especially if these global issues are affecting you a lot on a personal level, Mm -hmm. FSAP offers 10 sessions of free counseling. Uh, I think it's a really... That's our faculty, staff, and assistant program, right? That absolutely is. Mm -hmm. The counselors there, I've gone through a hard time in my own personal life, and I've reached out to them, especially because... What you don't realize is the stressors from local politics come into play everywhere you go, Mm -hmm. whether it be work, home, Mm -hmm. life in general. It has a bearing on you. Mm -hmm. And having a place where you can comfortably talk to someone about how you're doing and what problems and situations you're facing and coming up with creative solutions to approach those problems Mm -hmm. is really important. And it's a service that I've utilized a couple times Mm -hmm. to deal with my my own stressors. Mm -hmm. And it's been an amazing service. I cannot recommend it enough. And I think you hit on a couple things there that I want to highlight. First of all, yeah, the stressors are very real and they're very there. And when you have resources like some of the ones you mentioned, you know it's not going to make the stressor go away or solve the problem, but it is going to make you feel validated, <laughs> you know, a little validated. And, yeah, you, you do have a right to feel stressed about this. You do have a right to feel upset about it. And, and this is a safe place, whether it be the colleague networking group, whether it be the employee assistance program, whatever. You've got that space to feel like, yeah, you know, this is a real thing going on, and, and Cornell as a whole is understanding that and supporting that. And sometimes it really is about what you said, which is creating more opportunities for people to simply connect, to simply come together with other people. 
I think as a university, we provide a superb array of educational opportunities, mm-hmm. and they play such a huge part in fostering like deep and meaningful conversations throughout campus. Yeah. But one of the greatest opportunities we have to foster a sense of belonging and engagement is the ability to create those foundations in those connections in an organic way. Yes. And I've found that people are expressing the need to find places where they can find these beginning connections that foster this sense of community. Mm-hmm. And so I really, one of the reasons that I bring up the Pride event so much is knowing how much that event honors identity rather than focusing on education, which we've all been through. I'm going to be very honest. Yeah. As an LGBTQIA person, we have been through the education over and right. over. What we're looking for is to create that connection so that way we have our own safety network. Yes. And not that the education isn't valuable, because it absolutely is. Sure. But but those connections are what's going to really help us maintain a healthy sense of work-life balance. Yes, yeah. And I love that, because there is another way of showing, you, you made a good point earlier that I want to highlight again, which is for some identities that aren't necessarily visible to others. And certainly um, LGBTQ status could be one of them. Disability status could be another one where it might not be visible to other people. So if you were going to own that part of your identity, you have to feel like you're in a safe place to do that, right? And the only way to know that is if you've seen evidence around you that this is an environment that would welcome that part of my identity. And so for your college to do that Pride event, that is sending that message. That's sending that message to the people who I think you said are silent. Yeah. You know, are silent, and for good reason, right? They don't know if they can feel safe to not be silent. But certainly to see an event like that happening, it's just, just happening. Just happening because you're acknowledging that these are members of our community and we want to celebrate that. Could go a long way towards somebody not being silent anymore. Absolutely. And I find a lot of people in our community do a lot of masking where they alter themselves or alter the way they interact with people to make others feel comfortable rather than having themselves feel comfortable. And having events like these allow them to drop the mask in a space that Mm -hmm. is absolutely accepting and they know beyond a doubt. Is it scary? It's still scary. It still can be really terrifying Mm -hmm. to let let that mask go. But providing that opportunity And providing that visibility and providing that support in a way that's visible is so important to our community members. It's just one thing that says you're okay to be who you actually are here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You don't have to be the one doing all the work. You know, we're we're meeting you where you're at, so to speak. Yep, yep. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I love the LGBTQ community Mm -hmm. in general. I've been a leader in this community since way back in high school. In like 2004, 2005, I was the leader of the Ithaca High School Gay Straight Alliance. And uh, that's what they were called back then. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. (laughs) Um, And just the work that our community has done done Mm -hmm. on evaluating the nomenclature and inclusivity of our identifications. Mm -hmm. I really love that we're coming to a place where people have the ability to figure out who they are Mm -hmm. and identify in categories that are new and that really express how they feel inside. Mm -hmm. So... I, I really love hearing how people find home and comfort in in our spaces and even in our nomenclature and the ways that we categorize or identify within ourselves. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's really key, and you're right, it's evolving. It's evolving around us, but it's also just evolving for the person, too, as they go through their own life. So, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Carl, we've talked about so many aspects of your life today. You know, we've hit on so many different things in terms of, you know, all the various identities you hold, you know, all the experiences you've had and what you've seen and heard and all your roles on campus. I'm sure we're going to have employees out there, people working who are listening to this, who might be struggling or feeling challenged by the current work situation, whatever that may be, maybe because of one of the identities they hold that's similar to you, because they're dealing with, you know, the, the realities of being an hourly staff. I'm wondering, any parting words of advice <laughs> that you might have for people who maybe might be experiencing some of the challenges or struggles that you've experienced? This is such a big question, Erin, yeah. mm-hmm. and no one answer is, again, ever perfect for solving every problem. I think the most important thing that one can do in these situations is really to seek out support and resources where they feel comfortable doing so. Mm -hmm. This can be from coworkers who may be experiencing the same challenges, your HR representatives, or even talking with like personal peers or colleagues or someone in your support network. Mm -hmm. Collaboration can really be the key to thinking outside of the box and coming up with like unique and efficient solutions to Cornell. However, beyond social support, there's really several things that have helped me maintain a healthy work-life balance even when things are challenging or stressful. The most important is being open with yourself and with your manager about where you're at. If you're struggling with a task and you feel overwhelmed, reaching out and asking for help is always a better approach or has always been a better approach for myself Mm -hmm. than sitting and feeling defeat and feeling like you don't know how to get something done and you really need to do it. And it's just snowballing. Um, So being open about those things that you need help with. Um, Also, sometimes the perfectionist in us all really Mm -hmm. drives us to working beyond our capacity. I'm someone that's very guilty of that, (laughs) you know. Um, In these times, taking extra caution to make sure that we're caring for ourselves. And what this looks like may be different for people, but reaffirming our boundaries around work is a really good way of taking care of ourselves, making sure you find time to take breaks, saying, I can't take on this extra responsibility at this time. Mm-hmm. And and realizing that others will understand that these are okay things to say and to enunciate, especially when you're feeling very stressed or in challenging situations. And honestly, lastly, sometimes we just have to resign to being uncomfortable for a little while. Yeah. And that it's a hard feeling to sit in. But there may be times where there's not a specific solution that can fix an issue. Making the best of what you have while seeking out maybe other options or alternative options to those mm-hmm. challenges, it takes time and energy. But but sitting with it and being okay with not being okay is one of my favorite things to say, especially to students who come to my office. Yeah. It is okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be in a situation that's not working for you. It's temporary. It is absolutely temporary, and we can work through it. You just have to give yourself some time. Surround yourself by great people. Surround yourself with opportunities to expand your knowledge and connect with people who make you feel valued and supported. Oh, I love that, Carl. Yeah, I love that. And you're right. I do think that all of us have been guilty at times of thinking that we just have to be better 
you know, if we're not okay, then that's our fault. Instead of just allowing that to be what it is. You know, not forever, but at least for the moment. Allowing it to be, yeah, this is not okay. And it might take some time to figure this out and get myself through that. I love that. And sometimes it's just the redefinition of your expectations that you have of yourself. Mm -hmm. And saying, you know... I'm pushing myself really hard. Is someone else pushing me that hard or is it just me that's pushing myself? Because I am absolutely guilty to trying to get things done days before the deadline and then being like, I'm not getting it done on my timeline. Yes, but the deadline is two days out. (laughs) You still have two days. It's Uh fine. But, you know, uh, it's the perfectionists in us all Mm -hmm. that make Mm -hmm. us great at what we do, but sometimes add the stressors to our own work lives. That's right. That's right. We literally can't be our worst enemy sometimes. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. Yep. Yep. It's true. If you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care Mm -hmm. of others. Right. And uh, it's something that we've all learned and that we all have to experience. And once you experience, once you go, oh, I am in this situation. You recognize it. And so a lot of it is also protecting yourself and making sure that you're okay. And sometimes that is saying, Mm -hmm. oh, I know you have relied on me in the past for this, but this is something that I can't take on right now. That's right. That's right. Nope. Good words of advice for all of us as we head into this year. Carl, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you, catching up with you. We go way back to the days when you were working in chemistry and I was working in disability services. And <laughs> Who would have thunk it, right? That all that, that here we'd be sitting together talking about all the things that we're talking about. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Really appreciate getting to know you better. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. And it's amazing to see the growth that we've independently had uh-huh. and making time for us to be together to talk about that. I am very excited to see what the future holds for both of us. Yes, right back at you. Same here. Well, Aaron, thank you for flying solo uh, on this while I had all of my travel woes. Of course, we missed you. I know. And I made it back, you know, in time and I, ha- I got a chance to listen to the recording uh-huh. with you and Carl. And What a great conversation the two of you had. Yeah. I will share that one of my biggest takeaways is when Carl talks about the importance of connection and the various communities and finding that connection at work Mm -hmm. and how important that is, as you mentioned, not only in the work setting, but for the personal life as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he has so many experiences. Mm -hmm. He's part of so many communities. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Um, That's what's really interesting about him. Um, You know, as I said, when we were talking, it was nice to reconnect with him because he and I knew each other long ago. But I didn't know about all his various community connections, so to speak, back then. So it was really kind of cool to hear about his upbringing, his, his background, and just, you know, moving through professional and educational life, you know, with some different experiences as somebody with disabilities, as, you know, somebody who was first gen, you know, all those things um, have really impacted him. And I almost felt like when he talks about all those experiences, they weren't detriments, mm-hmm. but rather they have really informed formed how he now works with students yes. and, and with fellow employees for that matter. Yep, yep. No, I agree. I, I just, I really like the way he talks about um, not only his experiences with the within the colleague network group, mm-hmm. uh, but also all of the other resources and communities that he's been able to build. And he mentions that he joins various committee work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about the employee assembly yeah. and, and those kinds of committees that he has joined and how it kind of expands beyond the actual work that he's yes. doing. Right. And that's that's important um, distinction to make for everyone. Too. Yeah. 
It is, it is. And I, and I, I think that it was very interesting to hear him talk about how, for whatever reason, he learned at a very young age the importance of asking for help and mm-hmm. that that has really allowed him to become a good self-advocate. Yes. And though he doesn't have the attitude of, well, everybody can just be a self-advocate. What's the problem? I did it. No, he, he recognizes that's not something that everybody has had the opportunity to do. Not everybody has learned how to do it. Not everybody has had role modeling to be able to do it. And so he sees that. And I think that's why he has made it an effort to get involved in some of those things right. to sort of help advocate for the greater good, but also to help other people find their way in, in learning how to advocate for themselves. And that that's it, right? Because he specifically mentions that the the value that he finds in these committee types yeah. of work is that not only is he finding the community for himself, yeah. but he's helping to build community for others. Yeah. Right? And he's so humble about it. Yes. I mean, even, you know, prior to us doing this interview, when we were kind of chatting about what we might talk about, you know, one thing that was really important to him, and I, I think it came through in the interview, is that even though he's out there doing all this stuff and trying to represent all these um, concerns and issues, he does not want to be seen as a spokesperson for everyone. Right. Right? Like, he very much recognizes, I, I, you know, yeah, I learn things, I hear things, I'm sharing that, but by no means is my experience or my perceptions everybody's, and we have to make sure that we're creating space I think he actually said that, you know, making space and creating spaces and places for people, all different kinds of people to be able to also share their experiences and their voice. Yeah, and I liked your reaction to that, too, because there's something that you said that stood out to me, which was that stressors might not go away. But finding these spaces and these opportunities allows you to feel validated. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, for that reason, it is good that we have things like the employee assembly and different things that are trying to to make sure that that space is there. But even within them, they're trying to make sure that they're not being exclusive, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, that they're recognizing all the people who might not have access. Like, you know, a lot of hourly staff. Hourly staff don't have those same flexibilities to be able to participate in things like that, but that we don't want to not know what the experience is. So how do you, you know, so they're really trying to think about how do we go to them? How do we make sure that we're hearing from them so that we're doing as good a job as possible at representing their concerns? Right, right, right. Another part of your conversation that really stood out to me was when when you all talked about the fact that not everything that you do at work or every committee that you join or, you know, every community that you find needs to have an educational component, right? Not everything needs to be educational. There is so much value in just holding community and fostering connections. Yes, I absolutely love that part. And that is coming from a person who spends, you know, 80% of her job educating. Right. (laughs) And yet I will be the first to say I do not always need to be doing that and I shouldn't always be doing that. Right. And it, you're absolutely right. It, it, he's absolutely right about it. it. You know, can we just, just be? Yes. <laughs> just be, just allow the learning to happen organically mm-hmm. and not through a one-hour workshop. And that's what I loved about the event that he, he started in his college um, for the Pride event that was, wasn't really about educating. It was just about, hey, let's celebrate Pride Month. Yeah. 
Yes. Let every, anybody and everybody who wants to be part of it. And I would bet that just through an event like that, there was learning yeah. that happened in one-on-one conversations, you know, and people just literally breaking bread, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, people, are, I think in those situations, are probably more relaxed and more able to just be themselves and engage with other people. And that's really what we're trying to do, right? right? Like we're trying to make a workplace environment a place where everybody can just be. Right. You know, and, and that doesn't always need to happen by us telling you how to be. And he, he talks about the idea that these kinds of situations allow you to kind of drop your mask. Yeah. Right. And we've had so many of conversations regarding that here within our podcast where we've talked about code switching yeah. and imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and all of that, like that allow you to put this mask on when you come to work. Yeah. Right. And finding these communities and fostering the connections allows every single person to drop that mask if they're wearing one. Yeah. No, I, I did really like that part, um, particularly because. He made a really good point about masking. It usually is about, you know, you're trying to make other people comfortable with yes, you. Yes, <laughs> Which, that's never a great place to start from. And, and I that personally touched me because yeah. I have often said that because of my craniofacial condition that I often feel like I have to be the first one to initiate a conversation or to introduce myself, you know, to kind of um, to show that I'm, you know, quote, you know, just like everybody. Right. And, you know, it's, it's my attempt to make other people feel comfortable before they're uncomfortable. But it, when you really think about it, it's not really allowing me to just be. Right. <laughs> you know, on those days that I don't particularly want to be the first one <laughs> to make the joke in the room or to, you know, make people laugh. I just want to be, right. you know. And so that is a form of dropping the mask. And the older I get, the better I've gotten at that. But at the same time, it, it takes time and experience to realize you don't have to always be doing that. Right. It was a great conversation. It was great to connect with him again. I love learning new things about people that I've known, you know, that I've known a long time. But I also just love hearing about people that are really out there experiencing the realities and, and have a lot to say and a lot to offer. Yeah, he's a leader in so many other spaces. so spaces. many other ways. Yes, exactly. Perfect. Exactly. And I hope that others can learn from that. Thank you all for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and the show. For latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Toral Patel. And my name is Erin Sumbershase. We would also like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound amazing each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks Bert. Bert.